Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara Kearney and I am the host. Hello and thank you for tuning in to episode 57 of Book of Leaves. My name is Cara and this is my podcast where I interview people who are doing something good for the planet in any way, shape or form. And the whole idea is we take a leaf from their book. So there is loads of suggestions in the previous 56 episodes and this episode for the first time ever, I am re-interviewing a past interviewee called Ruth Leaney. If you guys don't remember, I interviewed Ruth for episode 32 of Book of Leaves and we talked about her work in Mozambique and in West Africa where she had been talking directly to people who had seen the first-hand effects of climate change. We talked about blue justice, we talked about plastics in the ocean, why she became vegan and how she manages working in coastal fishery communities and yeah, the community she's seen, the what she's seen while scuba diving and yeah like so many really really interesting topics so I would definitely recommend you go and listen to episode 32 to learn some more about Ruth and her story either before or after you listen to this episode but definitely give that one a listen as well and she got in touch with me because she over lockdown and um, the research work that she usually does had to halt and one of the, one of the projects just came to an end and she has been working on creating some educational books and more conservation with sawfishes and dugongs. So she got in touch to ask if she could come on and talk about that and we can link it to Ireland and how we can help here. And yeah, I, I was like, absolutely. Her books look beautiful. She's got a Kickstarter campaign, which actually finishes this Friday, the 5th of November. I'm actually getting the dates correct now. But this Friday, the 5th of November, 2020. 21, I said 2020 there, 2021, she's got the Kickstarter, will be coming to an end. So if you do have a fair, a spare few bob that you can support this campaign with to basically pay for the, some illustrating and some printing um, of the books, Ruth would greatly appreciate that. And it's they're really, really beautiful. So I'll leave the link in the show notes anyway. And as per usual, everything we discuss is in the show notes. And afterwards, I will just highlight some um, websites and resources that you can check out. But definitely go listen to episode 32 as well. And yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're a regular listener or this is your first episode. It is so lovely to have you here. Um, if you've any feedback for the podcast, let me know. Get in touch. I love getting people's suggestions or can you change this? What do you think about that? You can message me on Instagram, Book of Lee's Podcast, or you can email me, Book of Lee's Podcast at gmail.com. And yes, if you like what you hear, please do recommend it to a friend, share it on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you could take a minute to leave a few stars there and write a review, that would be very, very helpful. And it really helps with showing the podcast then to other people so that would be amazing thank you and if you are in a position where you can financially support the podcast and you do like what you hear and want to contribute that way I do have a Patreon account patreon.com forward slash book of leaves you can contribute whatever amount you like a month pretty much or 
If you're someone like me and do not have a regular income and you can't um, subscribe to something like that, I do have a buymeacoffee.com account where you can contribute three groups of how many three euros you like to go towards not actually cups of coffee because you don't really drink coffee <laughs> um, it all goes towards uh, the podcast hosting fees and the software editing equipment that I use for visuals and for audio so it would be greatly appreciated book buymeacoffee.com forward slash book of leaves and thank you so much to the patrons and the supporters that I have had and continue to have you guys just really take a bit of pressure off when something comes out of my account that's related to the podcast and I can replenish it then with um, what's sitting in my Patreon and in my uh, PayPal. It's I really, really appreciate it. So thank you guys so much. It's one little thing less that I can worry about. So I will let Ruth now do the rest of the talking. Don't forget to support her campaign if you can and give her work a follow on Twitter or Instagram. And I will talk to you guys afterwards. Enjoy. Ruth, thank you so much for coming back to the Book of Lee's podcast. You have the honour of being the very first guest to be on the show twice. It is lovely to have you. So thank you for being here. (laughs) What an honour. Thank you for having me. I'm (laughs) honoured. No worries at all. And um, if people haven't listened to your previous interview, I'd absolutely recommend that they do that. We talked about a lot. We covered your journey into being like eco-conscious and your traveling across Australia and stuff like that but just in case people don't have the time can you quickly I guess introduce yourself for for anyone who didn't listen to that interview or who doesn't know you? Sure so I'm Ruth Leaney um I'm uh, I grew up in the UK and then in Dublin to uh, Dubliner parents and I studied environmental biology in UCD then I went away for a few years learned to scuba dive fell in love with the ocean and came back and did a PhD on harbour porpoises in the Irish Sea. And so since then, I've been working as a marine biologist, researcher and conservationist um, for about the last, uh, yeah, the last 20 years, I guess. And mainly my focus has been originally on, on dolphins and whales. But for the last 10 years or so, I've been working more on um sharks and rays initially, um, especially endangered species. And then more recently, also just looking at um, the sustainability of fisheries around the world and um, trying to encourage more sustainable fisheries and think about endangered species and how maybe they can um, reduce the threats to those species. Amazing. So you're doing a lot of deadly work or I should say not so deadly work for, <laughs> for animals deadly. Anyway, listeners abroad are like oh my god what's she talking about deadly is a good thing in Ireland but um what was I going to say yeah so we chatted in June 2020 so over a year and a bit ago oh my god time time has gone so fast but um yeah have you you've been up to a couple of things and a couple of different projects and I know you um that your project that you're working on in Mozambique finished and you were in Portugal and stuff but what else have you been up to like book wise project wise and work wise yeah so it's been a really challenging couple of years um well for all of us I guess Mm. um for me because I'm used to working in Africa, which which I acknowledge is a um, a real privilege, 
that I've had over the last decade or so. And so obviously I haven't been able to do that because of border closures and travel restrictions. So I had to kind of come up with other ways to keep doing what I felt was meaningful work. And um, yeah, it's just required a real shift in um, in my approach to, to what I do. Um, so I've done a lot of writing work. I've written a few blogs for different um, nonprofit organizations about marine environmental issues. So things like ocean plastics, and the warming of the oceans linked to climate change. So that's been great in a way because it's sort of broadened my, it's broadened the the range of things that I have to read and, and sort of learn more about. I guess as a, a marine biologist, you kind of have an underlying knowledge of what's going on, but to really get into the detail of it is something you don't always have the chance to do if it's outside of your field of specialty, you know. And then, yeah, when I was working in Mozambique up until early 20. Uh, 2020 I was working in a, a national park there and the flagship species for the national park is uh, it's a marine national park and their flagship species is the dugong which I guess not maybe not all Irish listeners would be um, familiar with but they're it um, sounds like a pokemon <laughs> <laughs> it does a bit, yeah. well it's, it'd be a giant pokemon if it was one um they're they're commonly known as sea cows as well so they're these big sort of lumbering kind of animals that that swim sort of fairly slowly around in the ocean they've got a tail a bit like a dolphin and then their head is more not quite like a pig um i mean i'm not describing them in a in very uh very <laughs> endearing terms when you're, when, you're, when you're audibly <laughs> trying to describe but they're, they're kind of they remind me of like really big seals in a way or something like the body yeah of like a, you're right like a round kind of seal um exactly they're very rotund <laughs> Um, but they're beautiful animals. They're they're you know really really lovely. Very completely harmless. They eat seagrass. And do they are they a whale technically or what? What? No, what they're they um, they're in a group called the Cyrenians. Um, so that includes manatees, which you find in Florida and in the Amazon um, and in Central America. And then the dugong is is a separate species again. So it's just okay. a small group of animals. They're most closely related to elephants, weirdly. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So cool. But they do look a lot like like seals and they're fully marine. They don't ever come out on land. Um they spend their whole lives in the water. So in that respect they're a lot like whales and dolphins. So yeah, amazing creatures, very very rare um in East Africa. Their populations in Australia are considered to be really healthy and there's thousands of animals there. They used to be um, found all along the east coast of Africa, but now they're um, extinct from a lot of East African countries. And the population in Mozambique, which lives inside this national park where I was working, is really the last healthy, viable population in East Africa or anywhere in the Western Indian Ocean. So it's quite a special population in that respect. And I realized while I was working in Mozambique that... um, there are no educational resources for the people in Mozambique about um, f- to allow them to learn about anything about dugongs, really. Um, you know, what they are, why they're special, why people should protect them. And so I thought uh, when I was holed up in, in Wexford last year, um, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to create something that really speaks to these communities in Mozambique? So that they can understand better why it is that, you know, all these efforts are going into protecting these animals, because previously they have been hunted in Mozambique for food. And they're also um, 
sometimes caught accidentally in fishing nets and then they drown because they have to come to the surface to breathe. So there are a lot of risks to them in Mozambican waters. And I thought, well, you can't expect people to really protect these animals unless they know why it is they're valuable. So, yeah, so I wrote a little book called the Dugongs of Bazarutu. Bazarutu is the, the area with the islands in it that um, the national park covers. And um, we finished that up a few months ago. It got printed two months ago, and it's just starting to reach the communities in Mozambique now. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, it's really, really great. So I'm getting some photos back now from the NGOs over in Mozambique who are delivering the book to, to schools and doing a little lesson that I prepared about dugongs. And it's just really great to see all the kids, you know, looking through the book and learning about dugongs and and hope and seeing themselves as well, you know, because the book is really designed to reflect Mozambican life, Mozambican culture, the um, seascapes there, the, the clothing of the people, everything. You know, I really wanted for people to be able to identify themselves in that book. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see it. Um, getting to where it's meant to go that's brilliant and are, is it available for people to buy in ireland if people want a copy or across the world it's not but it's available to download as a pdf so okay. i can definitely share the um share the link for that with you what happened with this book was that it was uh, quite a limited budget to create the book and i really wanted to prioritize getting copies printed in portuguese and making sure that they made it to mozambique so we ended up printing it in south africa so that it was just a short hop over to mozambique i'd love to print it there is an english version um and i would love to get it printed at some point um and share it with people in other countries but I just haven't had the budget to do that right now. Okay, hint, hint, if there's anyone with lots of money listening. <clears throat> there's a nice little <laughs> colourful book about dugongs that everyone needs to read. Um, yeah. But that's, uh, that, will be, that will be absolutely lovely. And are you working on another book or project now for Sawfish? I am. So yeah, I seem to have turned into a bit of a like educational book writer <laughs> in the absence of research work. Um, but I... Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago about sawfish, also aimed at um, communities in East Africa. So just for a bit of background on that, I've been working mostly on sawfish for the last um, eight years of my of my career as a researcher. I guess a lot of people might not know what sawfish are. So Yeah, I was actually, I was chatting to someone yesterday. I was like, oh, I'm interviewing someone tomorrow about sawfish. And they were like, what's a sawfish? I, and I was like, oh, I just, you know, you'd presume that, you know, everyone knows what a swordfish is. It's just like a sawfish. Well, I guess with a saw. <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry, you probably have a much better explanation than I as to as to sawfish. Well, I have had to explain it many times. So, yeah, possibly. Um, I mean, they live in the tropics and subtropics. So, you know, I think people in Ireland could be excused for not knowing what a sawfish is. And they're also extremely rare. So a lot of people haven't ever seen one in, in real life. Um, there are a few aquariums, including one in or two in France that have sawfish. So if you do go to an aquarium abroad, you might see one. Um, but they're not something that's very commonly held in aquariums and they're pretty rare now in the real world. Here's a picture, conveniently. Yeah, I'll have to include this on the in the show notes. But yeah, they're they're almost it's there's just fins everywhere and then a, <laughs> a softer nose. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so they're basically like a, a shark. The back of the body is, is like a shark. The front of the body is flattened, more like a stingray, because they are actually related to stingrays. And then they have this long, long nose with, with teeth coming out either side that looks a bit like a chainsaw. So they're pretty weird looking animals, but um, I have to say I find them, I find them completely fascinating. Yeah, and and are they, they probably prey on other fish. I can't imagine them harming humans with their, their, or anything like that. No, yeah. no, they're, they're actually super shy animals and um, yeah, they don't, they tend to just swim off if, if divers encounter them or anything. So they, yeah, they feed on fish and the smaller sawfish when they're younger, they feed on prawns and other shellfish like that. So um yeah, they're very much. Um, I mean, they're, they're they're some of the biggest sharks in the ocean. They get up to one species of sawfish because there's five species in total. But one of the species gets up to seven meters in length, including its Holy its saw. So they, yeah, so they can be absolutely huge. Um, you know, there's very few species of shark that are actually bigger than that. But they're yeah, they're very docile, very calm animals and definitely not a danger to humans. <laughs> Despite the chainsaw nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As is often the case, humans are far more dangerous to them than, mm-hmm. than they are to us. And how do they with their chainsaw nose, with their cute little nose, mm. how do, do they use that to kill fish, to attack prey? How do they use it? Yes, yeah, so they use it in two ways. The first way is that it's covered with these on on, the, on both surfaces, the top and the bottom. It's got these tiny little pores all over it. Um, and all sharks and rays have these pores in the in the front of their heads, usually kind of around this the the snout, the schnoz. So if you see an up close photo of a, a great white shark, for example, you'll notice there are all these little black dots kind of around its its nose. And those are the same things that sawfish have all over their sores. They're called ampullae of Lorenzini, and they're filled with with um, with gel. And then a, a little nerve cell connects to each um, to each pore, and those allow the shark or the sawfish to detect tiny electrical signals in the water mm-hmm. and in, in the seabed. So when the sawfish swims along the bottom of the seafloor. It's actually using its saw to pick up electrical signals from fish that might be buried in the seafloor or fish or shrimp that are swimming nearby. So that's its first use is as a, a detection kind of. Literally a metal detector. Yeah, literally. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then when it gets close to a fish that it wants to, to eat, it'll slash the saw from side to side. And the the teeth on the saw will impale or kill the fish and then they can kind of shake it off and and eat the fish so it, it it has a double function as a um a detection tool and then as a a weapon it's fascinating is it the animals that exist that thank god these ones are in the ocean and humans can't breed underwater or they'd be gone as well like the amount of huge creatures and with with amazing things going on and and you know we're like looking for other planets i just don't get it i'm like i know <laughs> we haven't even explored our own <laughs> there's literally light up fish and a fish with the with the chainsaw for a snout like what more could you want we have it all oh sorry <laughs> little um <laughs> that just gets to me sometimes no i'm completely with you on to that space. oh god <laughs> But um, that is, they sound like absolute amazing creatures. And I presume they are unfortunately at threat right now. 
um, and probably because of humans. So can you tell us, I guess, what's going on in the sawfish world, how how they're doing and if there is anything we can do to help? Yeah, sure. So um, you're right. They are extremely threatened. About uh, seven years ago, they were designated by um, the IUCN, which is the International Union of the Con- for the Conservation of Nature. The IUCN has a shark specialist group, which I'm a part of, and um, colleagues there at that time realized and, and put together a lot of data on sawfish and realized that these were, at the time, probably the most threatened of all the sharks and rays anywhere in the world. Um, and that we we both had a, a real paucity of information about sawfishes. So there were a lot of places where we didn't know, are they still there? We kind of know that they probably were still there in the past, but are they still there? How are the populations doing? So in the intervening seven years, there's been a real explosion of sawfish research. My work started right around the same time that that early, that early work was done, where, the, where sawfishes were designated the group of shark and rose rays at greatest risk of extinction. And since then, the shark specialist group has added some other species to that list. So animals like guitarfish and wedgefish, which look very similar to sawfish, they just don't have the saw. But they're basically otherwise very big rays with these flattened bodies. And they're also very much at risk. But in the intervening seven years, there's been this really wonderful explosion of research and people engaging with fishermen to try and find out do people still catch these animals because they've become so rare that they're not something that's commonly seen anymore in a lot of countries and so the way that I did my research and the way that a lot of people have started doing sawfish research is by interviewing fishermen and just showing them a picture of a sawfish and saying do you ever catch this fish and the results have shown that in some places, people, they look at the photo and they go, oh, yeah, we still catch that sometimes. And that's, I mean, sure, it's, it's not ideal to hear that they're catching them, but it is at least good, good news that, that they're, they're still around. Yeah, because in other places, including a lot of the countries, unfortunately, where I worked, people will look at the photo and go, mm, I don't know what that is. And you know from historical reports, for example, in, in Mozambique, there are the the, the writings of, of Livingstone when he travelled down the Zambezi River, and he was seeing sawfish all the time in that river. That's one of the biggest rivers in, in Africa, and sawfish actually swim from the sea all the way up the Zambezi for several hundred kilometres to give birth to their babies in fresh water. So that was a major sawfish habitat a hundred odd years ago. And um, people do still catch sawfish around the Zambezi, so that's good news. But the, but the, the amount that they catch and the, the number of times per year that a fisherman might encounter a sawfish is extremely low now. So they've become very, very rare. And then, for example, in West Africa, younger fishermen have never seen sawfish. They don't know what it is. And um, that just tells you straight away that they're probably extinct in those countries. Mm. So it looks like sawfishes have gotten extinct from most of the west coast of Africa and from a lot of the parts of east coast, eastern Africa as well, which is, you know, really, really sad news because they used to be an extremely common sight in the coastal waters all around the African continent. Mm -hmm. And so fishing is probably one threat but we're talking like large-scale fishing um or bycatch even absolutely there's so the the main threats are are fishing and they're both industrial scale fisheries 
um, especially trawling. I mean, trawling is one of the most harmful forms of fishing anyway, especially bottom trawling. And because sawfish are bottom dwellers, they like to hang out on the seabed. Any fishery that's dragging a net along the seafloor in coastal waters is likely to catch sawfish if they're there, along with a whole realm of other of other species that are not target species and sorry and just to we talked about this a little bit in the last episode bottom trawling but just for people who might not have heard of this or not understand the scale like a trawling net could either be dragged by one huge vessel or like two either side of one big net and the net you're talking about is like one and a half times the size of a football field like it is huge yeah, they're so big. It's so hard to actually comprehend, and they're not just you know that's just not picking up one and a half football fields from one area. That's then dragged, dragged along for yes. so long, and it takes everything. And then if you don't say if you're only licensed to catch prawns, which are bottom dwellers that people trawl for, anything that you catch that isn't a prawn, you have to throw overboard. Like so, and it's already dead, or it's drowning. It's it's injured. They do not survive in Ireland. The bycatch uh, rate is forty percent. That's just discarded. It's horrific. Oh, horrific! And there's a group, an activist group called Sea Change. I know you. They were organising a protest. Um, Extinction Rebellion activists with uh, Sea Shepherd Ireland and Sea Change. They did a protest around this just a couple of weeks ago, which is why these like statistics are just like fresh in my head because. I, oh, it's just such a huge problem, bottom trawling is. So, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to, like, throw out some visuals there for people to try help kind of grasp the scale of the problem, which can be quite overwhelming. But, of course, if sawfish are bottom dwellers, yeah, bottom trawling is, is, is going to, to catch them and kill them. But, sorry, I interrupted you as you were also talking about it. Not at all, no. I mean, it's great to have an explainer on bottom trawling. You're right that I think a lot of people aren't really aware that there's such huge differences between different fishing methods and the impacts that they can have on the environment. And bottom trawling has been known for a very long time to be one of the most destructive methods. I mean, if you, as you quite rightly said, you know, these nets are are as wide as a football field, if not bigger. If you had a, a net like that or some kind of structure being dragged through a forest and taking everything in its wake people would be up in arms wouldn't they you know if it was taking all the wildlife all the birds all the trees everything and just leaving like a trail of destruction behind it and that's exactly what's happening in the ocean but because we don't see it 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 kind of goes out of sight out of mind yeah kind of thing yeah so bottom trawling is a big one and unfortunately because a lot of tropical countries where sawfish would live engage in prawn fisheries and prawns are most commonly caught by bottom trawls that means that there has been a, a very swift decimation of sawfish populations in a lot of these areas because sawfish like to eat prawns they often hang out in the same areas as prawns so if there's bottom trawling for prawns, it's going to catch sawfish. And I've spoken to a lot of people who've worked on prawn trawl vessels who said, oh, yeah, we used to catch loads of those. I cut the saw off one and took it home to put in my house as a decoration. So that's that's one of the major impacts on sawfish. Unfortunately, they can be ca- they can be caught by any number of, of fishing methods. The the saw that they have with these teeth sticking out of it is really badly designed when it comes to avoiding fishing nets. 
and they, they get very easily entangled in any kind of fishing gear. So while industrial fisheries have a lot to answer for, even small scale fisheries do also catch sawfishes. And unfortunately, their fins are one of the most valuable um, types of fin in the Asian shark fin trade. So a lot of small scale fishers know now that when they catch a sawfish, they can get a lot of money. They can potentially earn two or three months worth of salary just from selling this set of uh, one set of fins from a sawfish. So they're very unlikely to release that animal alive. They'd rather cut the fins off and, you know, and make the money. And in case it sounds like I'm demonizing these fishermen, I think we have to remember that a lot of these fishermen are living in extremely impoverished areas and they have mm -hmm. often no other option in terms of work. They either fish or they don't do anything and they don't eat, you know. So for, for a lot of these small scale fishers, they're really trying to find any way they can to improve their lot and make a little bit of extra money to send their kids to school or university or maybe to buy a mobile phone or something very simple. And I think we have to be careful of demonizing people in, in low income countries that do catch sawfish or other endangered species because, you know, they, they really don't have any other options. Yeah. Like if they, if they could fish sustainably and didn't have to worry about not being able to catch fish because these first world countries have overtrawled well, exactly. and overfished in their stead. Like the, these, it's such a complicated system of like colonialism that it just goes for years and years and years. So we just need to like uproot the whole system, but absolutely, it is not on their shoulders. If we were in their position, we'd do the we same. Would obviously, want to do like we want to survive and we want our family to have a good life. So we're just very lucky to be in Ireland where we don't have to worry about that kind yeah. of stuff. But this all seems like very far away from little old Ireland, and I know it's all in interlinked. And we again chatted about this in the last time, but. Like, what can we do to help? Can you enlighten us as to maybe some options? Yeah, sure. So I've, I've actually just written another book about sawfish, which is called All About Sawfishes. So my new book kind of goes into um, the various ways that, that anyone anywhere in the world can help sawfish. And I guess if you're not living in a country where sawfish exist, you're obviously not going to be able to work directly to help protect their habitats maybe keep a river clean or keep the coast clean or you know release a sawfish if you're a fisherman which which are the kind of activities we encourage people to do in in places where sawfish live but what you can do if you're in Ireland is you can support an organization for example that works to protect mangroves mangroves are one of the key habitats for sawfish they're also, they hold a lot of carbon. So they're really important for us in addressing um, the climate crisis. So that's one way that you, you can and kind what of contribute. Are, and what do mangroves look like? Mangroves are, um, they're called blue forests. So they're these, these trees that live right on the edge of estuaries and marine areas. And they're very salt tolerant. They have these prop roots. So you, you may have seen photos or, or video of these trees sort of on the edge of a, an ocean area with these big branching kind of roots, like stilt roots going into the water. They're not super tall trees. They're, you know, fairly low trees, but they're um, incredibly diverse areas. They're important for, for sawfish because the baby sawfish like to live in there they live amongst these stilt roots that the, the mangrove trees have and that offers them some protection 
but mangroves are also really important areas for as as fish nurseries so a lot of fish will have their will will spawn or their their larvae will swim into the into the mangroves and they'll stay in there for the early phase of their life getting bigger eating lots of food and staying safe from predators and then when they get to a certain size they can swim back out to the ocean again so mangroves are really, really important for fisheries sustainability. They're incredibly important for bird life. Um, and as I said, they, you know, they hold a lot of carbon as well. So they're these really, really important habitats that have unfortunately also been decimated in the last few decades as people try to develop the coastline or um, or just cut them down for, for fuel, for timber. So yeah, so that's one way that people can help. And I guess the other major way is by if you do eat fish by being really really conscientious about the fish that you eat and how it is caught um, and I know that involves an extra level of investigation when you're doing your shopping but really I think it's worth it there are fish out there that are caught by bottom trawls and it's not a sustainable means of fishing. It's also contributing to the climate crisis. A piece of work that I just did for a newly formed um, coalition called the Transform Bottom Trawling Coalition has shown that there is a huge, huge contribution by bottom trawling to, um, to greenhouse gases. And bottom trawling also mm-hmm. releases carbon from the seabed because as, as that net gets dragged along the seabed, it's releasing all of this sediment up into the water column. And that sediment contains carbon because when fish die and when fish poo, all of that sinks down into the seabed and it's held there. And so the seabed is actually this amazing store of carbon. But when we disturb that through bottom trawling, we're releasing that back up into the water column. We don't really know yet how much of that might actually get released back into the atmosphere, but it's possible. And even if it doesn't, carbon in in the seawater gets transformed into an acid. And that's a problem because any animal that has a shell, like a prawn, a lobster, any kind of mollusk, all the shellfish, their, their shells start to dissolve in more acidic seawater. That's got all kinds of knock-on effects as well, you know, like if we want sustainable crab fisheries and prawn fisheries, and if we want our whales to be healthy, because there are lots of whale species that feed on tiny little crustaceans, then we need to make sure that those populations of animals with shells stay healthy and they won't be healthy if their shells are dissolving so it's a very complex picture (laughs) Uh, no it is but it's all it's all connected like it's such a big web yeah and then there's lots of ngos in linked to ireland and abroad that help with this kind of stuff from you know the irish wildlife trust to sea shepherds to to loads of of ngos i'll try find some and link more in the show notes but yeah but we also need to especially in ireland as well get more marine protected areas like at the moment it's kind of like a free-for-all you know you can you could destroy the most precious habitat and there would be no repercussions because at the moment our marine protected Mm. areas are between 1% and 2%. Despite the EU commission requiring or requesting that Ireland have 10% MPAs by 2020, which did not happen. And um, yeah, so that was just another thing that that particular this campaign with Irish Wildlife Trust and, and Sea Change was, was calling for was at least 30% marine protected areas because at the moment 
we have between one and two percent that is practically nothing 99 percent of our oceans is at risk of just being destroyed and no mm. one can then be like persecuted or held responsible for it so that's something our government definitely needs to step up on and i'll include as many links as i can that people can like reach out to the government for and again just because we're ireland and we're small we have such huge potential and we're an island <laughs> well exactly we're an island with Surrounded by ocean, it's integral to our, you know, our country and our identity. And it, it does Absolutely. it does still blow my mind that there's a, a, a very limited connection, at least when it gets to yeah. government level, about how important our oceans are to us. It's bizarre. It's wild. Like, we are responsible for that, the sea around us. There's literally an Irish sea. Like, we have to take responsibility there are inland countries whose governments you know can have a can speak at the UN but how many actually are completely surrounded mm. by by water like we have to take responsibility for for that which is connected to us you know so absolutely uh, I just want to shake the government. Oh. <laughs> um, God, they really grind my gears, they, to say the least. But okay, I want to include as many links as possible. And um, before we move on towards the end of this um, up and down emotional conversation about roller coaster, sawfish, <laughs> roller coaster, as always, such is um, the activist life. But um, oh, actually, there's one, there's another thing. I wanted to ask you did you watch Seaspiracy no I didn't you haven't watched it no. okay and is there a reason you haven't watched it I don't have Netflix because you don't have Netflix that's <laughs> one reason yeah there's some people because I know like I just it didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know but it, it did a great thing in like awakening so many people up to like overfishing yeah. and like whaling and stuff but they did kind of I felt that they kind of demonized non-European non-first world countries a lot they really focused on I heard that I heard that and I heard some critique you know from from a scientist's point of view and yeah certainly from the the non um non-western point of view though I heard that there was an undue focus and I you know I think anything that brings the issues around fisheries into more people's lives and 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 makes them more aware of that is is a good thing in part um i do think we all have a responsibility as communicators to be as accurate as we can be and i do think also that we should never really be demonizing one country over another you know the west has already massively depleted its own fish populations and is now highly reliant on fisheries in other parts of the world so we have a role to play in those fisheries as well you know just by creating demand so yeah certainly that's maybe not ideal but the more people that that are aware of issues around fisheries the better because I think you know when yeah. people talk about carbon footprint of foods fish is often touted as one of the foods with a lower carbon footprint and that's actually a bit of a myth because it really really depends on on what seafood you're eating there are some very low um, carbon seafoods like sardines and fish that, that form big shoals that can be caught by pelagic nets those have a very low carbon footprint there are other things like as we discussed bottom trawled species um, especially shrimp the energy required to drag those nets along the seabed is so great that um, there are very few foods that are actually of a higher carbon footprint 
than, than bottom trawled fish. Really, you're only looking at beef and maybe pork as being um, as being of, of a higher carbon footprint. So, you know, even some some other um, animal foods from terrestrial um, sources would be lower carbon footprint than some bottom trawled species of fish. Yeah, there's so much involved. But I guess if uh, we stop eating fish or eat if you have to eat fish and uh, that's what you want to choose to eat, then please make sure it is responsible and sustainably sourced. And you can hear more about us chat about that actually in the last interview that we did as well. But I guess to shake things up a little bit, let's have some random questions to close us out. Um, We didn't have these the last time we chatted. So all you do is pick a letter of the alphabet and there'll be just a random question beside it. Um, it doesn't have to. The answer doesn't have to be related to the letter. I just chose the alphabet instead of numbers. God, just cause. So, if you want to have your first letter, I'll ask you your first question. Okay. Uh, T. T. Oh, what would you wish for with three wishes? <laughs> That's a big one. Let's. We're starting big. <laughs> um. I would wish for um I'd wish for much greater equality in the world that we live in. I'd wish for an end to all wildlife trade. And I'd wish for my own sustainable cacao farm so that I could have a lifetime supply of equitable fair chocolate. That is so funny because when this crossed my mind and you're and and you were like, oh no, I literally thought of chocolate. I was like, I'd wish for like ego chocolate in my head, but I didn't say it. So now it sounds like I'm making it up. But I That's swear. Funny. <laughs> so, Bing Bam Boom, you have your three wishes. They're very lovely, very good wishes, I must say. And pick another letter. Um, B. B. What? item have you had the longest hmm could be piece of clothing furniture jewelry well I've been living out of a bag since I was 22 so it's definitely not furniture (laughs) I think it's probably a pair of jeans that I bought when I was 23 so they're 22 years old amazing they're kind of held together with patches now but I love them brilliant and what's the what make were they oh well that might be a bit like advertising but they're levi's okay they do but to be honest i bought a pair of vintage levi's and they actually do last really well but i got them second hand so the guilt is is gone do you know what i mean but but if i and i will hopefully have them for years and years and years um but yeah pair of jeans very good and we'll go for another letter okay uh s s for selfish if you could live as an animal, what would it be? <laughs> well, definitely not a sawfish. <laughs> you know, you know, I've thought about this weirdly. I think it's a very but... reasonable thing to think about. Okay, good. The environment, absolutely good. Yeah, and to be honest, I think I I don't think there's a single animal that, that gets an okay deal of it these days in the mm-hmm. world that we we live in. So. Probably like probably my parents' cats have the sweetest deal. <laughs> um, but I did always think that I would love to be a seal because I love those sulky, you know, um, traditional tales in in Irish folklore. 
And I swam with seals a few times last year off the coast of Wexford. And they're just beautiful, gorgeous animals and so curious. And I was also volunteering at the the seal sanctuary in Wexford for for three months this year. So I got to spend a lot of time with little seal pups, you know, about this size. And they're just they're just fantastic animals. And I imagine that, you know, unless you're unless you're a seal dealing with a with a maybe polluted waters or living in an overfished area where there isn't very much to eat, it must be kind of lovely to be able to swim through the kelp and, you know, just they always seem like they're having a good time when you see them yeah, out there. And like the when ocean. they're happy on the beach sunbathing, they literally have something called like a banana pose where banana they like pose, bend yeah. <laughs> and like shape themselves like a banana. And it just it just gives me life. And if you see a seal or a baby on a beach doing that, just leave it alone. It leave is it happy alone. out. If you see yeah. a banana seal, just yeah. Um, that's amazing that you volunteered with them. I absolutely love the work that they do and swimming do with seals. Wow. Well, Ruth, it's been lovely to chat to you again and hear about more of the work you're doing to preserve biodiversity and amazing creatures from seals to sawfish. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, So thank you so much for chatting to me today. And I'm sure we'll speak again and hopefully meet in person. That would be great to meet in the real world. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Cara. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, there you go. So if you want to support Ruth and her work, I will leave the Kickstarter campaign for her book campaign in the show notes. And I would also recommend you check out Transform Bottom Trawling, which is a group that she is working with, a new coalition. While there's no direct ways that members of the public can be directly involved or support or donate to them yet, they do have like information packs on bottom trawling, which I definitely recommend checking out. And further to bottom trawling, if you want to get active with Extinction Rebellion, Animal Rebellion, Sea Change or Sea Shepherd, there are absolutely ways that you could do that. And I will link everything below. They Bottom trawling is quite um, quite an important issue to those groups, as well as the Irish Wildlife Trust, of course. And it should be an, an important issue to all of us. And uh, yeah, there's just there's not very many like first world or developed countries that have that are islands you know that have the kind of power that we do so I think that the fact that Ireland is an island we could change so much we have the ability to really really control and help our sea life and our oceans and create more marine protected areas so I just I have so much hope for that because it's something that we're just we don't do and we don't do it because we can't breathe underwater and we don't have x-ray vision we can't really see what's going on but um yeah there our seas are unfortunately being dredged around us and we need to take action on that so I will link whatever petitions I can find in the show notes for you to sign and yeah check out Transform Bottom Trawling Ruth also sent me on some reports she sent me on a, a summary page for Blue Ventures and Bottom Trawling and the Climate Crisis and she also has a fairly science heavy report that she co-wrote that uh, she linked as well Bottom Trawling and the Climate Crisis and they're all linked below so yes I hope you guys enjoyed this chat don't forget to listen to episode 32 if you haven't already to hear more of Ruth's story and like the first hand um, experiences and discussions she has had with people who have experienced sea level rise or 
fish being depleted in their in their local seas so yeah i found that that conversation really fascinating so go back and give that a listen if you haven't already thank you for listening to this one and I will talk to you guys in two weeks time with Lara McCann from Climate Love Ireland. If you listened to the recent episode of Climate Alarm Clock, I was actually supposed to have Lara in this week's episode, episode 57, but I pushed it to the next one so that we could get the word out about Ruth's campaign before it, before it um, closed on Friday. So yeah, that's why we're listening to Ruth now. Um, But I'll be back in two weeks with Lara McCann from Climate Love Ireland and 100% Reloved. So I will hopefully be in your eardrums then. So thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget, COP is on at the moment. If you are in Dublin, please come along to a march on Saturday, the 6th of November. We're starting at the Garden of Garden of Remembrance, I think at 12. I'll be sharing that on my socials, but we need as many people out on Saturday as possible in Dublin or wherever you are in the world. There is probably going to be a local protest or local action group happening because of COP, which if you don't know, what is, what is COP? Is it the or what's going on it's the conference of the parties it's basically a global climate summit um so this is where the like cop 21 is where the paris agreement came out of which is quite a quite a monumental um agreement to have been made and signed by so many people but they keep meeting and kind of talking about things as opposed to just acting you know like we've acted on the COVID crisis we need to act on the climate crisis so absolutely keep the pressure on and go to any march you can I will be in at the march in Dublin on Saturday the 6th and I hope I will see some of you there and if you see me if you if you see me if you see me come up and say hi it'll be great to see you guys so Thank you so much for tuning in and yeah, I'll talk to you guys in two weeks time. Bye.